got developers who are learning. We've got developers who are growing. We've got developers who are becoming more marketable and they're becoming excellent at what they do. And, and for me, that's really the rewarding part is like seeing people who came in, you know, not asking questions because they're used to school where you're not supposed to like work with others. You're supposed to kind of like solve the problems yourself and seeing them grow into either managers or into super high output ICs or into architects. What is up, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast, we speak to Matt Bowman, who is the VP of Engineering at Yext. Matt and I dive into some amazing things that he and his team at Yext are working on and how they design products for their B2B customers. We get into Matt's leadership principles and how he and his team are building an ecosystem for innovation and drive their software teams to optimize for outcomes. It's a fascinating conversation where we get into cloud infrastructure and data sovereignty, as well as how AI is shaping up the world of software engineering. So pump up that volume and get ready for an intriguing conversation with Matt Bowman. All right, Matt, we finally made it to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, (laughs) Took a little bit, but we're here. Yeah, I mean, what I've experienced is usually, I mean, schedules are like all over the place. Something keeps happening, but we've never had situations where we have to like reschedule more than once or twice. So uh, so I think I think we're perfect. We made it and I'm glad uh, that you are here on the podcast, you know. And uh, while we were getting ready, you told me last week that you went and played some golf at Pinehurst. Tell me a little bit more about that. It was a lot of fun. There were 12 of us that went down there. Uh, we played courses eight, four, three. And then on the final day, we played uh, number two. So it was a lot of fun, challenging courses. Uh, Playing number two after being able to play three or four rounds was really nice because you don't start with the toughest one at the outset. And I actually had my best round there. So really, really uh, good trip and a lot of fun overall. Do you you like golf often uh, nowadays or do do you take the time to get out? This year has been a little bit crazy, so it's been more challenging. I uh, saw some escalation in my handicap, but but yeah, I try and get out there during the summer, like once once or twice a week uh, when I can find the time. It's tough with kids, though. And this fall was, we had travel baseball, uh, so every Sunday was fully booked. I'd never gotten to golf until like uh, like a few years ago when I had nothing else to do and, uh, you know, everybody was stuck at home. So golf course seemed like a place where you could get out to. So I went and started playing some golf and now I love it because it just I just feel like you're playing against yourself more than you play against other people. So it kind of uh, helps you to keep uh, getting better at, you know, the next shot and things like that. So also I've realized extremely frustrating game. <laughs> <you're> like, <laughs> uh, anywho, but, uh, you know, I wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's a, it's a real honor to have you on. Uh, for, for everyone listening, why don't you let the people know of, of uh, what your role at EXT is and what you're doing uh, that's super impactful right now? Vice President of Software Engineering here at EXT. So I kind of oversee all of our product engineering. Pretty much anything that our customers use that's not bespoke is uh, developed by uh, folks on my team. There's been a lot of uh, movement. We kind of are trying to see where where our customers want us to to provide more support. And what what we're really seeing is is kind of a return to our core focus, the 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 areas that kind of customers came to us originally for. Uh, so our our listings product, our reviews product, um, we're going to be bolstering the development on those. Uh, and you know we're we're really looking forward to it. We just did uh, moved around some folks to try and 
add some additional horsepower to those areas. But yeah, that's that's kind of the big area that we're we're making an impact today. You've been with the X for almost ten years now. I know you went from a software engineer director, and now you're leading this uh, team. So we'll we'll dive more into like how that experience has been for you. Uh, but describe for me what does EX kind of uh, do actually as a company? What are the products like, and uh, how are people or companies? Is it like a B two B product right now, or is it like a B two C uh, kind of uh, open that up for us? Yeah, so Yex is uh, fully B two B. We work with uh, companies of all all sizes, so we, all the way down to like just single person S- SMBs, uh, all the way up to companies, uh, you know, like Verizon or Samsung that that are using us for uh, a handful of different reasons. The thing that we started out doing was our listings product, and our listings product was all about it was called Power Listings, and what what that allowed companies to do was they'd sign up with the X, they'd input all of their information about their different locations. So, let's say it's it's like Seven Eleven or something like that. They've got thousands and thousands of locations, and then on top of that, you have thousands of sites where people can find that information. And the way that that information is generally brought to those different sites is through aggregators. The problem with aggregators is that you don't really control that information. So what we did is we gave control back to the business so that what they could do is they put their information into our system and then we relay that out to all the different uh, publishers in our network. In addition to that, what we uh, started doing was using uh, that to pull reviews because a lot of these listing sites, what they have is is they have reviews. Um, so we started pulling that in and allowing people to respond to them. And we've kind of organically grown and added new products that were complementary to this set of products. But really, if you, if you look at what uh, drives the majority of our revenue, it's our listings product. And I know you guys have expanded your portfolio to like have uh, now like reviews, obviously, but you also have like platforms and pages and uh, analytics and content. And you're trying to do some cool stuff with AI as well, which I would, I'm curious to know. So is it like, uh, is your software engineering team like focused on all these products uh, uh, across the board? So uh, more, most most recently, I was mostly focused on our web publishing business, which is really was about the, the pages product. Um, but through our pages product, we would also host our search product, which was a like kind of a, a first in market AI driven search product. Uh, and more recently, we've started adding in our chat uh chat agent, which I think you've seen a lot of uh, companies doing because it does help lower support costs, increase customer satisfaction, those sorts of things. So uh, we have a fully dedicated data science team that, um, you know, does all the research. They build models. Sometimes we work with external models. It's really just a question of what what problem we're trying to solve. But they're kind of always on the cutting edge. And then we're trying to kind of integrate that into our system, make sure that we keep a continuous feedback of information back into them so they can retrain. Uh, we've got data labeling, all, all sorts of like fun ML engineering type uh, problems to solve. So that's relatively new for us. But uh, I think I still think we were pretty uh, far ahead of things. I think we started that in about 2019. Right. Yeah, which is kind of like a sweet spot of when everybody was getting into this with like data and everything. Amazing. So, uh, so it's been ten years at DX, you know. And uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, like, b- even before we go, uh, talk about DX a little bit, how did a young Matt Bowman decide, like, this is what he wants to do, you know, uh, for life and play golf? So, yeah. I like calling, like, hearkening back to like the the original computer that we had. It was a Commodore sixty four, and I would just like kind of play around with that. We bought it from a neighbor that came with 
a whole box full of, of, you know, five and a quarter uh, floppy disk games. And so we were, I was busy with those. And then I realized that, oh, this is actually pretty cool. I wonder if I could make something that did something on the, on the computer. So I messed around with that a bit. We got a 386. I started doing QBasic. I've been interested in computers since I was about eight or nine. It's kind of been like a lifelong thing. I developed uh, some software that I ended up selling uh, to local swim clubs. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was kind of just like a lot of fun. I would just sit and program all day. It was, it was you know, outside of swimming, which was <laughs> a full-time activity, that was what I was doing. I have spoken to so many people, you know, and it's so amazing to know different stories and beginnings, right? And especially uh, like when somebody says, I build a software and that's what I loved. Like that was programming, you know? So at the core of it, like even if you're a leader today, at the heart of it, you're still a programmer, you know? So do you miss like, like working on hands-on code? Do you get to do that nowadays? Oh man, not, not very much. No, I, I definitely miss it a lot. It was, it was a very difficult, I would say that was probably the most challenging transition was, was knowing that I could participate in the actual coding, but knowing I wasn't supposed to. And so it was like kind of pulling yourself back, letting others make decisions, letting others kind of drive uh, how we're going to architect things. And really like I, I'm there to kind of facilitate things and make sure that that things go smoothly and, you know, basically deal with the stuff that no one who wants to write code wants to deal with. The, the landscape of technology has changed so much in the last 20 years, right? Like the stuff that you kind of were working on basic, you know, and we, okay, at that time we were building websites, say on HTML and then we, CSS was there and now we've moved to React and uh, you've, you have this whole idea of building, uh, you know, applications with like components and, you know, Next.js, lots of changes in at least front-end development and then mad amount of changes in like backend with like databases and cloud and everything. Uh, what's been your take on all of this? I, I remember a lot of the software we wrote early on in my career was was dedicated toward like Windows machines and Internet Explorer and really just making sure we had good support there. And then I remember kind of like people up in arms about how Internet Explorer was so non-standard and like, and, and then you start seeing build up in Firefox and then kind of uh, Chrome came out and, and there was just all these sort of like changes there that, that were great developments because it did provide some level of standardization across all of those technologies um, and, and made it easier to develop. I, I can't tell you the number of shims that we always had to introduce into all of our code in order to deal with all these, uh, you know, front end bugaboos. Mm-hmm. I, we used to be all on premise or all managed data center. We would drive there. We'd, you know, scan the back of our hand to get in there'd be like a you know human trap in in order to make sure that only one person was going in and out really cool data centers um but you know we used to be very much uh inclined to do that sort of thing because it was like well you got to manage your own hardware because you got to know what kind of power you got you don't want all this noisy neighbor stuff and uh then we started experimenting a little bit more like i i left uh that company and I was uh, working at a small software consulting firm and our clients really needed us to stand things up cheap and quickly. And really the only option there was to go with the cloud. You could stand up a full website. You could stand up a whole uh, system for hundreds of dollars a year versus tens of thousands, which is what you'd probably be paying in a managed data center. So the innovation kind of like skyrocketed. And what when I was originally skeptical and totally wrong, I, I, I'm all in now. You know, we're, we, we love going to the cloud because it allows us to control costs. It also allows us to expand uh, when we need to without having to be like, all right, let's go rack some more servers and, 
ex, uh, you know, accept this massive capital expenditure. Right. So I, is at DX, are you guys like, like, do you have like a multi-cloud strategy or like all in on, like say one particular cloud, like AWS or Azure? The team that I uh, originally joined with here, I had worked with it at the previous company. And so we were very much about our own hardware. Um, and so we had a, we have a, we had a big uh, data center in uh, Secaucus, New Jersey. We still do. And uh, we've got one, a managed data center in, in Texas, but we just opened up a uh, second sort of mothership in Europe. And that is entirely in the cloud. And so we, we do have uh, support right now for GCP as well as AWS. And we were in Azure for a little bit. Um, and we do plan to return to that. But we now have kind of, depending on the product, we have data centers kind of all over the place, cloud data centers all over the place. What, what's your personal preference when you think about you know these deployments and of course the the scale and the robustness and the elasticity that you get with cloud do you feel like uh, being all cloud makes sense or do you think some sort of a hybrid makes sense just to make sure that you have the freedom to kind of run your own stuff also and control it like what is is that what where you lean I, I mean, I, I definitely would lean to cloud first and then kind of once you realize or have stabilized and once you've decided, like, we understand the workload, we understand this this uh, domain really well, we know what to expect from traffic. We know what to expect from all these different like aspects of how the system operates, how our customers in, interact with it. Uh, it. It can make sense to kind of do an, do an on-premise or a managed data center cloud uh, of your own. You know, running with one of these great uh, orchestration uh, frameworks like like a Kubernetes or like a Nomad, uh, which is which is what we use. Um, but I think generally, I would always start out in the cloud. I think it just makes so much sense. It's so it's so easy, and it is so inexpensive, and you can experiment and you can tune. And then once you're like, we're spending too much in the cloud, and we could we could easily take this in house. We understand it. We can deploy it. As long as you're using a lot of these sort of like modular components, like the orchestration layer, like I mentioned, you can pretty easily just stand up a bunch of machines in a data center, deploy that to it, and uh, you know get your code running out there. I spoke to a bunch of people, and one of the persons said, like in 1999, I was writing my own database <laughs> because Oracle was expensive, and uh, and then uh, today he was like. We have so many solutions. We can go to the cloud. We can run, uh, say, Cockroach DB on the cloud, or we can uh, select like a Postgres database. Or there is a plethora of technology available, uh, and like Kubernetes definitely is something that changed the game. So, do you feel like this is if if you were born, say, like, or you were getting into tech today? Do you think that's more exciting or is it exciting like 20 years ago when you had no documentation? You have to kind of uh, go to like so many different forums and, uh, you know, places like find answers to it. No, no stack overflow. So, so what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even remember where I would go to get my information. I remember like building my first uh, like Linux system and and like all I could get it to do was grayscale. And I was like, this is so frustrating. And you're looking at your drivers, you're looking at what graphics card you have. It was so challenging. I would say it was more of a slog and you were far less productive. I'd say today is probably a lot more exciting because you literally can stand something up. Like my, my son plays Minecraft and and we stood up like a Minecraft server. It took like no time. It was amazing. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you just like, I don't know, so cool. And the other problem that you would have with your Linux machine is that you would uh, <laughs> you'd get it running 
And then you couldn't connect to the internet. And you're like, oh no, now what am I going to do? You have to like go get a second computer to try and like, you know, find out what, what's, what's wrong with your driver for your ethernet card. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have done stuff where, you know, I would have the same program file running somewhere else. And then I would go line by line, compare where did I mess up the code, you know? And then I would realize that I can missed a bracket. <laughs> you know, like debugging was like so difficult, you know, at that time, you know, but you know, it, those were the days, you know, I think folks have gone through an experience like that. And now uh, like with all of this, it's, it's amazing. But at the same time, I think it just makes us so much more confident about what we are building, uh, right? And so your software engineering teams, the teams that you manage, uh, what are the kind of things they're working on right now in the sense? Can you expand on, on that a little bit? Uh, so when I originally uh, started working on our web publishing uh, platform, our, our pages product, uh, we we had kind of we, we were very early to the static generation game. I mean, this was this is something that more recently has become kind of a, a industry standard. These this sort of I, I think they've retired the term, but it was like the jam stack. Uh, but the, the static generation, people were like, this is really great for sites that don't have tons of dynamic data, right? It, it allows things to like load up really quickly. Uh, you know, you can get everything out to a CDN. It's just like the performance and, and the customer experience. They're not experiencing five second delays loading up a page, right? Because er- anyone who's seen a five second delay is like back and clicking on the next link, right? Yeah, they're gone. Um, so we had a system that did that. It's, it, it was our kind of our classic pages system, but it was entirely internally managed. It was entirely serviced by our services team, uh, which kind of limited, I think, our ability to use it. And we also kind of had some plans uh, for this new system that was going to be based off of streaming data. So it was you define your stream. What are the linkages? What are the data You know, from this like graph of information? And anytime something changes across that graph, we want to generate a new page or an update to that page, right? So you have to understand the the linkages between all of the data points in order to do that. And so what we built was a stream system. Well, the stream system wasn't compatible with the old uh, page way pages was uh, were generated. So we ended up building this new thing that we had called sites that allowed you to kind of use the streaming concept and generate pages on demand using your own code uh, running in kind of like you know, serverless functions. Um, we've got a whole like CI that we built for it. It's, it, it was a really cool and fun project to work on. Uh, and then, so we did that. Our streams project was really big and it's really mostly an internal thing, but uh, in terms of the power that it's going to give us in the future, I think it's uh, pretty incredible. We've, we've been doing like the, the big move to standing up a European mothership. So a secondary mothership was a massive undertaking. And really it forced us to think about how can we, deploy our code in a much more modular fashion. Cause you know, when you build something organically, you end up with like network routes and, and like firewall rules and all sorts of like crazy stuff that like you try to deploy it to like a fresh cluster and it just doesn't work. Like nothing can communicate, like everything's not working. So that was a really big undertaking. The team uh, recently wrapped up. Yeah. And I mean, it, I mean, and setting up anything in Europe is becoming more and more interesting, right? Because of all the new uh, like regulations that they have and, you know, compliances that you have to follow. So does your product have to like uh, adhere to the sovereignty laws and uh, data sovereignty goals uh, that, you know, Europe wants to maintain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So GDPR was definitely a major driver for our decision to do this. I mean, it was a, as I mentioned, it was a massive undertaking and there wasn't, 
incredible demand from the European clients because what they were seeing with the performance of the system was generally fine. Like they didn't really have any issues with it. But once the sovereignty stuff started coming in, they started getting concerned and they were like, look, we don't want to deal with all this like silly stuff. It, you know, can we get migrated over to the to Europe? And we we're like, well, we can't really migrate you to Europe until we build an entirely new uh, YEX system over there. So, so yeah, it was, it was largely uh, uh, driven by that. If you're following like AWS last week announced that they are building an AWS cloud that is only for Europe, uh, not just region. It's just an entire cloud environment that will work only in Europe, uh, which is, which is pretty interesting. I know Google's committed to that as well, but I think they kind of announced it. So uh, I think the whole idea over there also is like that only uh, European employees are going to be working in those data centers. So they're like, there are very strict laws, and uh, it's pretty interesting how that's shaping up. I wasn't aware of, of that in particular, but it sounds almost like a like a Fed ramp. It's it's something that's like totally isolated, follows a very set like strict set of rules, uh, and, and as you mentioned, like who's who's uh, working there, who's accessing the data there, uh, where are they located. You know, there's a lot of stuff there that that we're trying to figure out, and I think the lawyers are even struggling to figure out what exactly to do. Yeah, I think and it's a good value prop, right? Like if you're being pushed in a position where you have to like contain everything. And I think the best way is what you put, like it's like a Fed ramp for Europe, but it only works in Europe, kind of a cloud environment. What, what else uh, does your team kind of use in terms of technology? Like you mentioned Kubernetes, obviously a nomad and something that you've like, tell me a little bit more about what do you guys use for your front end applications? And I mean, you don't have to give any secret sauce if you have any, but just generally uh, like for folks to know, like how are companies like you, uh, yours that are leading the path in this space, uh, what kind of stuff that you use to kind of build this kind of an experience? The challenge with leading the pack is that you're kind of constantly in a state of migration. Uh, and so if you looked at our stack, you know, five, six years ago, it would look very different from the stack you see today. But when it comes to like our primary stack, we're using React for our front ends. Um, we still have play like Java play servers kind of hosting our web stuff. Cause there is just a massive amount of stuff that we're running on there. Uh, that is something that we're kind of like in the midst of a bit of a migration, just trying to like feel it out, see what we can do, see what makes sense. Um, we're using uh, uh, Google's closure compiler in order to compile our JavaScript, which is kind of like a throwback, you know, a lot of people aren't even familiar with that, but it was kind of a big deal at the time. It does, tree shaking, like, you know, you kind of like get these small compact binaries, um, which, which was a really big deal, especially if we were trying to service low internet areas. But generally speaking, we're dealing with business customers who have a business internet connection that are using their computer to do the work that they're doing. So for us, it's not as much of a differentiator to have these like micro binaries. Uh, so kind of moving moving away from that, because there are some like kind of gotchas. They've gotten a thing called advanced compilation, which uh, restricts the like some of the things that you can do with JavaScript, but it also helps it kind of like do like trace through and see what's being used and what's not being used, so that it can actually like chop out whole functions or whole uh, files that aren't aren't ever being touched by the code. But it's a little bit challenging because if you compile it not in advanced locally, because advances can take some time, uh, there's a chance that when you do compile in an advanced mode, it won't work. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that from a from a developer <laughs> standpoint. Unpredictability. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. so we're kind of moving away from that. But yeah, React Front, uh, Java Play. But we are using a lot of Go uh, now. We've got a significant amount of our system 
uh, running in Go, and it's a very slim HTTP server that's that's doing all the all the Go web serving. We can come back to this. Like, I mean, I want you to continue, obviously, but uh, is it is Go because you have a lot of developers who like Go? Uh, they're saying that this is the right place because I've seen a lot of uh, developers uh, who love Go the, just the way it is. You know, is it because of that, or is it like you just company felt like Go is a language that you need to get to? Uh, yeah, I've got some insider information on this one. I, 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 a, a good friend and, and a former colleague who's now uh, working with other former colleagues at, at a startup, uh, he kind of fell in love with Go. And he, he at the time was a very influential uh, member of our technology team. And he was like, guys, we should use uh, we should use Go. I really like it. He ended up doing a ton of work to, to make it so that the entire team could participate and use Go within our ecosystem. Like, right, it's, a, it's an unbelievable undertaking to actually do something like that. And he did it all on his own and kind of got us to the point where we could use it. So, yeah, it was kind of like a personal preference thing for him. Um, but it's kind of spidered out into different parts of the organization. I think a lot of people really do appreciate the simplicity. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Yeah, I, I know I stopped you, but yeah, go ahead, continue. So you use Go, React, and what else do you guys use? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, d- depending on where we are, if, if, if we're in kind of our uh, uh, managed data centers, then you're going to probably see a bunch of MySQL servers. Uh, we're like a 17-year-old company at this point, like 2006. Uh, so so we were using MySQL a long time ago, and we really haven't seen any any compelling reason to leave it. I, I think if we were, I'd probably say Postgres or something like that. It's a little bit more uh, fun. But anyway, so, so that's that's our, our primary relational database. Um, uh, kind of communication between our different systems. We wrote a homegrown RPC uh, uh, library, and it has served us really well. It's actually really great. We're trying to move over to gRPC to kind of replace it for, for our, uh, but you know, you kind of see like where we were really strong with that system. Like it, it's able to handle just an unbelievable amount of traffic and gRPC is kind of like choking under the load in some cases. So it's, it's kind of funny to see that, you know, we, we definitely wrote something that solved the problems that we were facing as opposed to, you know, kind of a general system that solves a lot more problems, but maybe not necessarily as narrow as, as what we're looking for. So uh, we're moving to gRPC, but currently we're, currently we're still on what we call a Yext RPC. Um, for message handling, we, we use RabbitMQ uh, internally. And that's, I mean, it's solid as a rock. As long as you don't abuse it, it is just unbelievably reliable. I think your use cases have a certain scale and it works for you. I've seen experiences where trying to wrap MQ and, and it's just like, it's just at some point I'm like, this doesn't scale and I cannot live with it. Like, And my experiences is working with use cases that require like scale and resiliency. And there is this need for like uh, terabytes of data to flow between systems and stream in real time. So I think in those cases, like I've seen Kafka, um, along with like a great CDC on a database work really well. But uh, I feel agree with you that RabbitMQ in a, in a, in a, in a use case where it, it ha- fits the bill, it fits the bill really well. So, and it's been around for such a long time, right? So it has, yeah. And it was written in Erlang, which is, you know, probably not a lot of people know that, but that ran like the entire European uh, uh, telecommunications system for, I'm, I'm not sure if it still is, but it, it, it might be. Um, yeah, so so we are using Kafka as well. I, I think one of the challenges with RMQ, at least from my perspective, is that like it, it it can hold so much data and you don't know what's in there. 
So you have to figure out ways to inspect it. Like, how do I know what's in this queue? Like what's backed up? When, when is, when is this customer's problem going to be solved? You just don't know because it's, it's opaque. You, you're like, well, it's somewhere in the queue. It's somewhere in there. And then you can also like run into issues where you have these, these sort of massive fan outs where a single message will go into a queue and all of a sudden you have thousands of outbound messages as a result because everyone's subscribed or, you know, we've got like 50,000 exchanges because, you know, when we wrote it at the beginning, only like five customers were using this, but now we've got everyone using it. And so, yeah, uh, we're using Kafka though uh, for, uh, as well as Mirror Maker, in order to transfer data to our uh, different, we've got our source data region, which is kind of like the mothership, and then we have our consumer serving regions, and those are kind of scattered around the globe. Uh, and that's where kind of all the customer facing stuff. So when I say customer, I mean it's really more our customer's customer. So like someone who visits a website that's hosted by our Pages product, that's where it's going to be served from. You have all of this technology available, like, so your software engineers, like, if they have to do any sort of R&D, do you have, like, any protocols around, not not protocols, but more, like, process around how do you foster, you know, research and development and how does that flow into your product lifecycle, stuff like that, uh, that you manage? I, I probably tend to be too open to new technologies and, and would kind of have us on like 50 different stacks because it's just, it's so fun to see them and you're like, oh, this actually solves this problem really well. But at scale, I mean, and, and, and scale is relative. We've got 150, 170 engineers now. Uh, uh, and when you have that many people and you have uh, like a massively diverse set of technologies, it, it can slow people down and it, it can inhibit movement across the organization. Like if, if we need like what we just did, we, we just moved a handful of people from a bunch of different teams over to a different area. If we were all using disparate technology, not only do they have to learn like the problems that are being solved by that uh, code, but they also have to learn how to code in that language and do it effectively. Like we can learn uh, languages pretty easily. People can observe and they can read and they can, you know, we've got autocomplete and copilot, but ultimately it comes down to like, if you don't know exactly how the code operates, if you don't understand maybe how the JVM operates, uh, garbage collection, how it works, you can write some really suboptimal stuff. And if it gets out into the wild, it, it can really cause you some headaches. There is a difference between somebody who can code, somebody who understands the code he's writing, somebody who copy pastes the code and understands the code, right? Uh, so that you kind of segue into like a, a space, which is like a, a mammoth of a conversation, right? But we can touch on it is when you brought up Copilot and the whole idea of AI, uh, how, how do you feel about all of that impacting your teams and where all of this is going right now? Yeah. I, so as, as I mentioned, I probably like get too excited about these things. And, and my, my belief is them as uh, being like a silver bullet. is probably too, too strong. Uh, we started with kind of a, a little pilot program for Copilot this, uh, this spring. And we rolled it out to anyone who wanted it. We said like, hey, you know, get on our license and, and use it and test it out, see what, see what you do or see what you think. And we did a couple surveys throughout the period to try and get a sense of like, you know, what was going on. And while I think people did find it like interesting and in some ways helpful, I, I just don't think it's where it's at. It's not at that point where it's like, Oh my God, it's amazing. I couldn't code without it. I, I think people are probably at that point with autocomplete, but I don't think Copilot's quite to that point, but it, it is exciting. 
I I agree with you. I think there's some cool things that they are shipping out in Copilot. But again, I mean, uh, before Copilot, there was this, uh, in if you use code, VS Code, you had uh, this package called Tab 9. And that would kind of autocomplete stuff for you. That was really good, uh, you know. So, and also I'm not, like, sometimes when I get boilerplate code, I'm so skeptical of the code, like, where did it come from? <laughs> you know? So I'm like, I have a distrust. So I will actually double check everything that I am writing. And I mostly code uh, whenever I get to code. Is either right, right now I'm doing it in, in Node or React or, or JavaScript, basically, with uh, or Python. Like, those are my two go-tos. And I've been trying to do some Go stuff. But uh, it, this uh, stuff around AI is, uh, is changing the, the way we perceive um you know problems right now so i know you, your search product specifically has you've added some you know ai capabilities to that so do, does your your ml and ai team kind of are they exploring all the amazing apis that open ai is releasing and testing them out and uh, you don't have to tell me i mean if there's a secret around it but I mean, I'm. I would be surprised if you guys are not. So yeah. Yeah. I. I mean, I think there's some secret sauce, but most of the secret sauce is probably in our people. I. I think. I think when you when you look at when you look at the the capabilities of of what's out there, it's pretty incredible. But then you see what uh, OpenAI just did with with their stuff, and they were like, they, abs- you know, made obsolete a, a ton of people that were kind of just piggybacking on their technology. Um. So yeah. What. What we do want to make sure that we're doing, though, is paying attention to the different offerings they do have. And uh, we've, we've spun up a machine learning engineering team. And really what their goal is, is to kind of act as the bridge between our engineering teams, our non-ML engineering teams, and our data science team. So our data scientists can focus on data science problems and, and kind of like going out there and figuring out, you know, how do we make the best use out of our A100s that we've got? Because uh, those are expensive as hell. And then... Uh, our engineers can also say, like, we know there's a problem or our product managers can say, we know there's a problem. We know that there's a solution out there that we've already developed and that they can actually interface with it. So we've got our kind of gateway for all of our uh, we call it our data science gateway that acts as kind of the broker between our internal systems and uh, the data science machine learning models, the training. There's tons of data that we're just throwing off from these things that are then being used in retraining. So, yeah, there, I, I would say. Uh, that gateway also, though, has a way to open up to open AI to, uh, you know, models potentially uh, being run by like hugging face. So th- there's definitely like we want to make sure that we're capitalizing on all the things that can help our customers the most. But we are doing a ton of work internally to develop new models and, and kind of train them on uh, customers own data because they really like that when when the AI sounds like someone who works there. I think the challenge is uh, is that the speed at which this is developing is so difficult for us to keep up, especially when companies uh, are working on this on the side or somebody like me who's testing it out without the enterprise umbrella of security and um, you know making sure that it does what it does. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to build a product that is AI-driven and helps your customers. And say it says something, it can impact their revenue, right? That's the piece that uh, I'm shocked by that the space at which this is innovating is extremely wild yeah there, there's so so there's been this challenge like and, and i'm sure you're aware of it this this big challenge where ai bots will kind of go off the reservation you know you can think of like bing and and getting you know the bing bot uh i can't remember the name of it but just getting upset with the user you know like getting upset it's, it's really not angry at them but it sounds like it's getting upset with them uh 
and and you don't want you don't want your customers getting yelled at by your AI bot, right? That that's a really bad experience. So what we've done in order to kind of prevent that, and and I think it's becoming a more of an industry standard, uh, was we figured out because our search product was so good at like finding the information using an inbound query, using NER, like trying to figure out like what is the intent of this of this uh, of this search, not just like taking the words and doing a tiff diff into an index, right? Where we're doing a lot more intelligent stuff. We're examining the query. We're hitting a bunch of different endpoints. We're figuring it out. Anyway, that's our search product. Uh, we will actually do that. With their query, with their chat uh, question, and then we'll we'll transform it into something that we think would be a good uh, search. We then use that search in order to query our, our uh, knowledge base, and then or our customers' knowledge base, and then we use that to formulate and feed that back into the AI to respond. So that's that's you know that kind of keeps it a little bit more narrow, a little bit more on the reservation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're saying is, I mean, it's not completely a RAG system. I mean, but as, uh, but a RAG, basically, you have added your own knowledge and you've taken the prompt to kind of get a better response out just or over just relying on the AI's response. Um, I don't know if this is a tidbit that I can share with you is like about a week ago, there's this company called Vectra. Uh, who released an open source model. It's on Hugging Face. It's called Hallucination Evaluation Model. And what they're doing, it's like an open standard where they have taken a small model that has been around for like a while. They fine-tuned it. And then across that model, what it does is it looks at questions and it summarizes responses. And then uh, it looks at GPT-4, GPT-3.5, Llama, all of these models and rates their results on how the hallucination levels are. And the, it, it's interesting. So they're going to like, it's open source and you can kind of uh, look at those in, in your context as well. But the interesting findings from that was that GPT-4 and uh, 3.5 have the lowest hallucination rates, whereas oh, uh, Google's Palm models have the worst hallucination rates. So that's what nobody's using. There's like a direct correlation there. But but what you're trying to build, it sounds like, is the right approach to implementing AI for enterprises or B2B customers, right? And I've, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, that's the consensus amongst seasoned engineers and teams and leaders. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, you still get sometimes the hallucinations. You just don't get the AI yelling at the customer for, for you know, you know, prompt engineering them. Uh, <laughs> we've been able to, we've been able to really like do a great job eliminating this, but you know, early on we were seeing stuff where you would ask it a question and it would just like make up an answer. And you were like, you don't actually know that that is not nowhere in the search results. Did this information come up? <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's, I mean, that's like classic hallucination, right? So, uh, that's where it is. Uh, but it's cool to know. Uh, let's, let's pivot a little bit like Matt. I mean, uh, it's I mean, one of my most, uh, the most exciting thing when I was uh, seeing you come on board was like learning about your leadership philosophies, right? Like obviously you've, uh, been a software engineer, but leading a team now of people and guiding and, and you have to make sure that principally they're driving to outcomes and things like that. So what are your leadership philosophies uh, uh, that you have developed that you can share with everyone? Sure. Yeah. So uh, there's a really uh, good book called The Ideal Team Player that we've modeled a lot of our core values off of. And and really what that comes down to is like, we're looking for people that are hungry, people who want to like learn, who people who want to grow, people want to like find the next thing that they can do to help make an impact. 
We're looking for people who are humble. We're, we, we don't want people who think their stuff is too good and no one's, you know, can approach them and ask them a question. We want, we want people who share, uh, you know, the credit for things that get done. And uh, we want people who have kind of a higher emotional uh, quotient. You know, we're looking for higher EQ folks. We, we call it smart. Well, ideal team player calls it smart. And, and we, uh, our behavioral is entirely focused around that. And it's, I'm sorry, a behavioral interview, the one that we do for uh, inbound folks. And it's delivered only by our most senior uh, people on our team. And it is also the way in which we evaluate people's performance. So like really what we're looking for and what we found uh, based on this model is that like you can have some really high productivity stuff. You're not dealing with silly sort of interpersonal issues with people. You know, everyone can kind of like focus in around like what are the things that are going to move the business forward? And And I think you know, what we found is that generally it helps increase morale. It helps increase output. And we're not even looking for output from purely from a Yex thing. Obviously, it's great for us as a company to have high output engineers. But really what this means is that we've got developers who are learning. We've got developers who are growing. We've got developers who are becoming more marketable and they're becoming excellent at what they do. And and for me, that's really the rewarding part is like seeing people who came in you know, not asking questions because they're used to school where you're not supposed to like work with others. You're supposed to kind of like solve the problems yourself and seeing them grow into either managers or into super high output ICs or into architects. It's, it's uh, very satisfying to see that and see what they can produce. Early on in my career, I mean, I was also like, you know, so afraid to ask questions. And then I got introduced to open source uh, and where the, we were on Discord channels or Slacks. I'm, I'm just seeing randomly people throwing their errors and saying, I'm getting this error. What does this mean? And then there would be somebody nice enough to. And it kind of opens up uh, your thought to the fact that, well, not everybody knows everything. And uh, you can you can ask questions and you can grow. And I think I've, my growing has happened through uh, learning from these people with this level of humility. So uh, I think it's, it's great to uh, have that. Do, have you uh, had experiences where, you know, you have an engineer who, who just struggles to like, uh, who does great work, but struggles to communicate how good his work is? How do you handle that? I think that is the problem that we probably encounter the most is that like the folks that, that really are kind of like uh, uh, really even embody the core values of the organization, they're not going to toot their own horn. So we need to count on our managers to be like, like doing that for them. Because because they're going to, the, the first thing you ask them is like, wow, that's an amazing system. How'd you build it? And they're like, well, actually, I, I only like helped out in this area. You know, they're not going to, they're going to like push away, push away the, the credit. So yeah, how do we deal with that? It's re- really, you know, our hope is that our managers are keeping an eye on this stuff. They understand what's going on. And all of our managers are, are, are engineers or like, like current or, or former engineers. So we've got people who understand what it takes to build systems, who understand like, you know, what it takes to manage a system that's gone from new to, to like production to legacy. You know, it's, it's just, there's so much that you can kind of learn over the course of managing the life cycle of, of software. Uh, and, and I think it helps them understand I'm working with this legacy system. No, no surprise that like our, our regression tests tend to fail, you know, when people make big changes, like it's, that's just how it works. Whereas maybe someone less seasoned would be like, 
what the heck? Like, what, you know, why are you making this change and breaking everything all the time? It's like, well, this system's a little brittle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. Uh, have you, uh, like in this scenario, right? Like you have a team of 170 people. How do you foster innovation, like in the, within like new product development and things like that? Like, do you have like um, a design team, um, uh, uh, software engineering team, an architect team um, working together with like, um, a team that has data from what the next requirements are like how do you operate uh, in this environment so so for incredibly new stuff our our former ceo who i'm still friends with and was you know i started working with him in 2005 um he he was kind of like you know he had wild ideas and he, he would he would like come up with them and he would figure out how to market them and he, you know that that was kind of the the driver of like innovation that wasn't necessarily uh innovation from a you know, use this neat technology. It was more like a product innovation. So there's that type of innovation. Then there's the other type of innovation, which is like, you know, how do we embrace new technologies and actually make sure that we're staying current? So the way that we're organized is we have our product areas. There's a head uh, sort of engineering lead for each of our product areas. There's a product manager for each of our product areas. Uh, and they work together kind of on the roadmap, building user stories. Um, and then we've got within each one of our product areas, we have, uh, what we call a group architect. And so this is kind of our top level engineer for that organization. And they're in charge of how's the system perform? You know, what are the error rates? Uh, you know, what, what's the regression, you know, how, how frequently are we having regressions? Uh, they're kind of like, they own the capabilities and the functionality of the system and how it's built. And then we have our sort of teams that have tech leads and those tech leads are in charge of various projects. So a project will come in, they'll work with the group architect to kind of bounce ideas off each other as how it's going to be designed. And then the team swarms it and, and uh, works on it. So that's, that's kind of how we're structured. You also have the challenge of like the technology. There's so much going on. So what do you do to like keep up with what's happening in the space, stay up to date and kind of bring a, a distilled version of, hey, you know, we need to like start looking at it this way and start thinking about it. How do you manage that? Well, listen to the Big Ideas and App Architecture uh, podcast, of course. <laughs> I, I have gotten Thank some so good much. ideas. Yeah, I have gotten some good ideas from that. I I, uh, I was reminded of the Golden Path uh, by one of your guests. I was like, oh, yeah. So I looked at it and I was like, oh, my God, we should be doing this. Um, so so definitely that. But, you know, 10 p.m., Twitter scrolling. Um, you know, I, I used to be much more active on Hacker News. I haven't been on there in a while. But that's a really good place to stay abreast of what's happening. Um, but, you know, I also lean pretty heavily. We've got some just very, very brilliant engineers that, that are dedicated to their craft and, and know it and love it. And they're constantly investigating new stuff. And I, I remember when I first joined, uh, one of our, one of our, uh, engineers was like writing his own, like, you know, it, it wasn't even a test app. It was like, it was a big thing. And he was writing it all in TypeScript. And he was like, yeah, I really like TypeScript. It's pretty cool. This is like nine years ago. There are a bunch of people like that who love TypeScript, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've met a few too. <laughs> really, when it comes down to it, I, I, I'm relying so heavily on our engineers and our architects to, to help drive those decisions and test things out. Like getting them in the right roles and having them do those things is just so important to kind of stay on top of the innovation and staying on top of the new technologies. I wanted, I always ask people who have been in the space for a while, um, because we have so many young folks who also listen to the uh, podcast. What is your advice to, you know, teens or young engineers who are like looking to, you know, advance uh, and learn and grow um, in this space right now? Yeah. So, so 
this is really geared toward the more junior engineers, the folks that are just getting started out in their career. I would, I would look at the best people in your organization and try and do what they do and then try and do it better. Because if your company's hiring properly, you probably can do better than, than that person. I know most of the engineers here can probably smoke me when it comes to anything like this. So, so I would say just work really hard, you know, uh, make sure that you're working well with others and, and yeah, just like become excellent become excellent at what you do. That is that is the way you will grow your career and everyone will know it and people will know you by reputation. And that that's a really important aspect of, you know, becoming great as a software engineer. Awesome. I spoke like a true veteran of the game, Matt. <laughs> uh, Those are all the people I want to hire. <laughs> when the episode releases and if you see a bunch of people hit you up on LinkedIn and asking for a job, well, you've, you've, your goal is completed. <laughs> All right. So uh, if you want to look for Matt, look for him on LinkedIn, Matt Bowman, uh, VP at Yext. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, I mean, I am super excited to follow what you do next. And I mean, I hope this is just the first conversation we are having and hopefully have you on again and talk about some more fun things. Awesome. Yeah, this is a ton of fun. I really appreciate it. You make the experience so easy. So I appreciate it. <laughs>